Welcome back to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. The following is the second in a two-part story about the 2011 RSA breach. In part one, we heard from Sam Curry and Dave Castingnola about how the breach was discovered by an attentive employee who noticed sensitive data exiting from RSA's servers. Sensitive information regarding Secure ID, the company's flagship product, was stolen. It was yet unclear whether the attackers had managed to get hold of the cryptographic key that they needed in order to decrypt the stolen data. If they haven't, RSA was in the clear. But if they did have the key, then hundreds of RSA's clients were at serious risk. RSA's management then had a tough choice to make. Should they disclose what happened and suffer the consequences, even though it was possible that no real damage was done? Or should they maybe keep quiet and hope the whole mess just goes away? Art Covalio, RSA's CEO, made the call. We are going to do the right thing, he said. And they did. History has a way of repeating itself. Last December, the New York Times reported a breach at FireEye. It was shocking for obvious reasons. Few entities in the world are as secure as a top cybersecurity company like them. It became an even bigger mess when they realized that the FireEye breach was just one small part of a much bigger SolarWinds supply chain attack. In the months since, experts have been trying to make sense of such a momentous event. A nation-state supply chain attack that even cybersecurity companies couldn't stop because they themselves were victims. It's unprecedented, never before seen. Sam Curry is the CSO at CyberReason and visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. I'd say the, the narrative is a security company gets hacked by a nation state and it leads to uh, havoc in the world. And probably one of the first times when a, I think a very public security company, one that was tied into a lot of things, was seen to potentially be vulnerable as well. What Sam's just said there about fire. Ah, sorry, listeners, slip of the tongue. I must be getting mixed up because the breach Sam's talking about happened 10 years ago. I think purely external perception was, ooh, how could this have happened? In 2011, Sam was the CDO at RSA Security. Like FireEye, RSA was a top cybersecurity company. Like SolarWinds, their software was basically everywhere, so they invested heavily in making sure it was secure. A week before the breach, I had a very, very well-known financial services customer in for a briefing, and they pointed to our security operations center, literally pointed to it and said, I want that. But even the best security can usually be breached somehow. A week later, they said, how could that happen to you? And they were shaken to their core. I, I said it publicly at the time, we were probably at nine, eight, nine, maybe even a 10 out of 10 in terms of security capability, but mm -hmm. um, even we got hacked. And so I think that also made people afraid that if it could happen to us, it could happen to anyone. 
It may seem like the big data breaches of today are unbelievable, that of course they didn't see them coming, because they're so complex and novel. But when RSA was breached a decade ago, only the fine details were different. Their attackers used many of the same tactics that still work today. What they did was they effectively went after our HR partners, right? So they hacked upstream in our supply chain. Hacking RSA head-on would have been very difficult. Hacking a company close to them was not. They had much weaker security, and they had R&D capable of giving them enough to make it through that, 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 that first crack in the armor. To breach the human resources company, the attackers used the oldest, best trick in the book. The initial access to the environment was from a, an email from a partner who was exchanging an Excel spreadsheet for recruiting back and forth. The email looked like it was coming from a partner, but of course it was not. And they had essentially embedded uh, um, embedded a call it a backdoor, but effectively they silk threaded and, and, and forked uh, another process when that Excel was opened. There was no, do you want to run this file? No warnings, no nothing. The malware triggered as soon as the file was opened. She double-clicked it, and it would, they were in the system. The attackers had full access over the victim's computer. And it was a unique build of uh, Poison Ivy, which is a remote-access Trojan, that is still being used, by the way, to my shock and horror, because I thought it was even a fairly old technology at the time, for all it was a unique build. And then they proceeded, they did the daisy chain, right? They escalate privilege and move through the organization. They hopped from the HR partner into RSA itself. Even then, RSA had measures in place to prevent sensitive data from leaking. But the hackers got around it. It was also a corruption of a tool on Xfil that wasn't supposed to allow out uh, encrypted data, and it was. So those are the basics. But the deeper you get into the RSA hack, the weirder it gets and the more it changes. In the weeks and months and years that followed March 17th, 2011, news outlets around the US and worldwide told the story of RSA's breach while failing to understand or outright misreporting so many of the important details. I'll tell you two things the world probably doesn't know unless they sat in one of my anatomy of an attack presentations because we couldn't say it publicly. One of the things everybody missed about RSA's breach had to do with who actually did it. Shortly after discovering the breach, RSA's analysts spotted their attackers' footprints and realized they were still in the system. Counterintuitively, the analysts chose not to boot the intruders from the network. So in incidents, your job is to protect the company, privacy, the customers, the shareholders, a lot of things. As long as you fulfill that mission, you then try to understand as much as possible the opponent. And that's why you don't kick them out necessarily right away. They studied the perpetrator's every move, gathering intel. So the first clue that we, uh, we had who it was was the time of day that they operated. 
Um, they were almost exactly 12 hours out of sync with us, and um, they took nice, predictable lunch breaks. They came to work, and they went home, and they weren't very talented. There were about eight people at the keyboard, and we were pretty sure from the start they were in China. They figured it all out, or so they thought. We knew where they were, what they were doing. We had them boxed in. We were going to kick them out on the 15th. That was the plan when we found the second attacker. A second attacker, a Russian nesting doll of APTs. They both came from the same nation state, and the, the second one hacked the first one. The second attacker, they were very talented, and they had highly idiosyncratic behavior, and they each behaved very differently from each other, and they worked very long hours. They were a much more professional and well-trained squad, and they attacked the first Only a small number of industry insiders have ever been privy to this side of the story. What I learned as an observer in all of this is that it is hard to answer the questions of what happened and when in these, in these breaches. And so, you know, I've become a bit of a skeptic when the latest breach du jour makes the news. And oh, yeah. everybody wants to, you know, come up with a simple... Um, point the finger or blame a certain specific thing, it is extremely difficult to go back from a forensics perspective and, and really determine all of these things. That was a giant takeaway for me. Yeah, and, and Dave, you make an excellent point. Even 10 years later, it's hard without going to a whiteboard to explain it. But an excellent conclusion. I hear about breaches and I go, all right, the hype cycle is all about exposing a brand and shock and awe. My own wife, I, I said to her the other day, I said, oh, there was, a big, there was a big breach recently. She goes, ah, there's one every day, right? So the media is trying to catch these huge stories. And, I, and then I wait for, let me talk to somebody who's really there. Because unless you're on the inside, nothing in the media gets it right. And a lot of the books written about it have gotten it wrong, including ours. People have gotten the story of the RSA breach wrong for years, over and over again because they weren't in the trenches, because they didn't see what Sam and Dave saw. So it's Thursday morning, 9 a.m., uh, and the news is let out into the world. What happens? Bedlam. <laughs> It went crazy. We left off our last episode at the end of the workday, Thursday, March 17th, 2011. It's been about 30 hours since RSA realized they'd been fleeced for their flagship product, 50% of their entire business, the Secure ID Authentication System. The one thousands of companies around the world used to secure their most sensitive systems. They published the news of their breach, and that's when it all really started. It was like going to war. We were trying to figure out who do we call, what do we have to say, what's the wording, how do we, uh, how do we, you know, we knew we controlled the IT environment because we'd shut it down. We shut it all down and we started the painful process of rebuilding it. All that was happening at once. When Dave came and took control of the communications arm and the crisis response, um, we were moving at full tilt. We had to build eight departments, each with a job description, workflows, job tasks. We automated everything uh, using one of our tools, the Archer tool uh, that we, the GRC. Which wasn't, which wasn't designed for that, but yeah. It was not designed for it, no. 
And uh, I'll never forget the moment on Friday night. We had a meeting and it was a, literally a stand-up meeting that lasted three minutes. And we got done and somebody looked at me and they said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm going to need a bigger boat. Uh, I need more people. I need way more people than I even thought about all day today. This is going to explode beyond anything. And they ran down the hall and they said, we're going to get volunteers. How many do you need? And I'll never forget coming, you know, 10 minutes later, looking down the hall and seeing 60 people. It looked like they were marching down the hallway in slow motion. Dave was now commanding an army. RSA employees from around the country were streaming into Bedford, Massachusetts by the dozens. What happens is that people don't leave when it's going gets tough. You think they will. The day of the breach announcement was uh, that entire building, there was, you know, if you looked at it from the parking lot, looking in, every light was on, every room had meetings, and everybody was at that point just hard at work, you know, working on their particular part of solving this problem. Within a week, out of the, the, the time we had 2,400 employees, I think a full 1,200 stopped their day job and were doing just this. I remember those, those first few weekends as we just plowed through seven-day work weeks and I would look out at the parking lot on a Sunday morning and see the entire parking lot of our campus full. And uh, I remember somebody joking, saying, I don't think there's any Chevrolets left at the rental car lots at Logan Airport. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. And the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Few rental cars were left at Logan Airport, and few lights were off, even in the overnight hours at the RSA building. Just to paint the picture, we know those lovely conference rooms people have in buildings with the glass on the, you know, beside the doors and the frosted glass. We, we had to paper it up. We had to leave our phones outside. We suddenly couldn't use computers for the craziest of things. We, um, we had to scan the room for bugs. We had to scan the woods, and we found things for, that was espionage happening. Actual, real-life spy stuff. We had to start tracing where people went because we suddenly were worried that there were insiders who'd been blackmailed or compromised. It felt like living in a thriller novel. The intensity level was off the charts. The, the alignment and the focus, I don't think I've ever seen that in my career since. Uh, everybody was laser-focused. I just felt like every part of my entire body was alert and entirely focused on this mission. The mission wasn't exactly what you'd imagine it to be. Repairing systems, finding and defeating attackers, that was the easy part. The biggest, scariest threat to the company wasn't any Chinese APT. It was angry customers. Who'd you have to talk to and how did these conversations typically go? <laughs> They started usually very ugly. Um, and, and Dave, Dave and I, we did hundreds, right? There were hundreds of customers yeah. that each of us spoke with. And in Sam, many cases, 
that first conversation led to three, four, five additional conversations. It's hard to imagine a less appealing job than being the face of a corporate apology tour. Sam was put out in front of this with, uh, you know, Art Coviello and a few execs. Sam got stuck doing video calls and jumping state to state doing explainers. I flew to Bentonville to talk to Walmart and I addressed 600 people there and they later gave me a unit coin for the conversation. I spent five hours at a whiteboard. Uh, I went to MasterCard, who invited me to St. Louis to address the local CISOs. And um, my job was to organize, schedule, follow up, follow through, document, track, monitor, report to the board. And um, I remember just how intense those conversations were, Sam. Yeah, and I I got put on the hairiest ones. Um, Mm. The hardest meeting I had, because you asked for the rough too, I had to go to D.C. and address with the FFIEC and the assembled banks. So it was a large room with, uh, I think, a couple thousand people in it. And I had to stand up at a table uh, because it was a large, uh, very large hall and basically talk in a microphone about what happened and take questions. It It was incredibly difficult because these people are going, you're our trusted partner. What's going on? And the only thing you could do was just run through the facts with people and answer the questions directly. Yes, this is what happened. This is, you know, we'll do these things for you. What do you want? Like, how can we help? I had the good fortune of almost all of my conversations being, you know, somewhat professional. I only had less than a handful of people that screamed at me and yelled and cursed, Um, you know, but I opened up every conversation with you're upset. I'm upset. Uh, believe me, and this is this is difficult. It went on like this, call after call, video conferences and flights and NDAs and anxiety for weeks on end. We went to simply working all the time. Um, there was nothing else. People didn't go home and make food for their kids. They found babysitters if that had to happen. People descended to help reinforce the breach, literally and figuratively. Um, it was exhausting. It was grueling. Um, it was, uh, it, it's one of the, it, I mean, I don't think I've ever done anything in such a sustained high intensity way before or since. And I've, I've been through some, some pretty big things. This was for me, 30 days in the office without let. And you <sighs> fell asleep when you had to, and you got up and kept going. You know, a lot of it is actually a blur. How can you work straight through 18, 20 hour days? What were you working on? And it was, the answer is everything. Yeah, I hope to never go through anything like it again. Dave had a room at the nearby Marriott, but was almost never there. Coming back late at night, leaving early in the morning, if he came back at all. It got so bad that people started noticing. It was my fourth week. And, you know, just living there, uh, I would come to the hotel, by the way, figured out something was going on. The hotel staff felt so bad for Dave that they started doing his laundry without him even asking. Uh, it, was, it was kind of funny knowing that they were taking care of me. But uh, at one point, um, I was told to go home for a night. They said, you need to go home and see your family. And it was a Saturday. 
And I recall flying home and I was on the Delta flight and I had my laptop up and I was on Wi-Fi and I was just watching so much email come in. I was staring at my screen, watching email just come, come. And my screen was just real time refreshing through with all these new messages that were piling in. And uh, I got landed in Detroit, went home, uh, had a phone call with uh, a, a well-known entertainment company. And that person was uh, not in a good spot. And uh, we had a couple of phone calls that night. I went back, was looking at my computer, and it was Saturday evening. And I went upstairs, and my wife looked at me and said, you're leaving. I said, yeah, I got a ticket on the 11.30 p.m. flight tonight. I'm flying back. Um, you know, it just... It was just, it was all encompassing. It was everything. It was our entire life. Earlier in this story, Sam Curie said there were two things nobody in the world has known about the RSA breach prior to this malicious life episode. The first thing was that there were two attackers. The second is that nearly seven, eight months later in October, We went back and revisited that first question of whether we had a, you know, you know, was the screen green or red? Because there's no such screen. What Sam's referring to by green and red here is the thing we never actually figured out, even this late in the story. Whether the Chinese hackers had stolen secure IDs, coveted encryption key. I think I said we had come to the conclusion that we'd had a breach and we then moved into action. After seven or eight months, they had enough information to make a call. A call as to whether they really did get truly and properly breached or not. We came to the conclusion we probably actually didn't. All those months of suffering, the hundreds of calls, the international media spotlight, the late nights sleepwalking back to their rooms at the Marriott, it turned out Secure ID was secure the whole time. And that's quite a shocker. Because, you know, five weeks after the first attack, we were attacked again. A second attack in April. And they didn't succeed in that second attack because... We were still shut down, not because we were better at security at that point. It seemed obvious to the guys at RSA what the attackers were coming back for. The first time, if you remember, they'd only managed to exfiltrate half of the security data. And we then came to the conclusion, oh, they must be coming back for the other half of that file they exfiltrated. But this assumption turned out to be wrong. Well, we found evidence in October, that no, they probably were coming back for the key. And that's a vital distinction. They came back for the key, which means the RSA breach was probably a non-event. The fact that the attackers came back for the key meant they didn't have it in the first place, and the security data they had managed to exfiltrate was useless from the start. We sat around in October and said, so do we tell anyone this? Do we, you know, by now the damage is done. People have replaced whatever security controls from us they need to. They're all at risk is under control. And we said, no, it's not worth a third news media hype wave that could, could do more damage to customers and to partners 
who needs to set the record straight if people are healing? In 2011, the world assumed RSA had been hacked because they had failed in their security. It turns out they were attacked twice and managed to protect their data both times. So yeah, they really did have 8, 9, 10 out of 10 security. Sadly for Sam and Dave and their colleagues, it took 10 years for anybody to recognize them for it. Until today, until this podcast. If there's one thing that you could leave people with amid everything that we just talked about, um, one takeaway from this story, uh, what would you say? The one I would say is when, if and when this happens to you, um, you can't be a victim. You cannot be a victim. Nobody ever says, oh, poor so-and-so. It stinks to be them when that is a big company or a brand. Having data is a privilege, not a right. And so in the moment, you're going to have to make a choice somewhere of saying, am I going to be a hero or a villain? And it seems like an obvious thing. My advice is if you don't have that art attack to smack you around and make you make the decision, choose to be a hero. Really. Not only, not only is it the right thing to do and a good look, but um, be part of the community of folks that are trying to prevent victimization of others. Um, don't, don't, don't hide it because the, 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 the court of public opinion will make a decision and how you behave has lasting consequences for yourself, for your shareholders and for others. And I would just say that if uh, that advice, well, he did advice from Sam is followed. You will survive. You will survive. Even, even a, a very big public breach, you can survive. When they first got the news of a breach, neither Sam nor Dave thought their company would live past it. But rather than cover up the bad stuff or try saving their own personal reputations, they did their best to be responsible and help customers. They told the world what happened almost immediately, they put their faces on camera and in front of audiences, and tried to do the right thing every time, even when it hurt. And yet their predictions of doom didn't come to pass. The company did return to normal. There, there was life after the breach. When you're in the eye of the storm, it seems like things will never get better. But eventually, the wind and the rain stops and the clouds part. I recall coming home once I was released from my engagement and, and I was going back into my day job and I was saying goodbye. It's just how emotional that was and the tears that were shed. And then I remember coming home and, and my daughter looking at me when I dropped my luggage in the kitchen and just kind of went, ugh, because we all literally, literally physically aged during the episode. I mean, like gray hair. Sam stayed at RSA for another three years, Dave another six. Amazingly, my career resumed. I don't know what it would have been otherwise. I thought, hey, my prospects are vastly diminished, but my career re you know, resumed a, a, a more normal course. Dave, how about you? I tell you what, I wore it on my sleeve. What we do matters. And uh, since that period and since leaving RSA and, and having an opportunity to work with some other wonderfully great companies, uh, every time uh, I joined a new company recently here at Bug Crowd five months ago, and as I 
got to know my colleagues here in the sales organization, uh, you know, I, I really, really always work hard at trying to remind all of us about why we're here and what we do matters. To me, it just has really solidified, um, frankly, my passion. And, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I don't care if it comes across as corny. Um, and uh, this is more than just about getting purchase orders and selling and, and growing businesses. It's really about trying to help these customers who um, are still in a tough spot today. That's it for the RSA mini-series. Thank you for listening. A big thank you to Andy Greenberg and Wired Magazine for working with us on this story, and also to Anthony Freed from Cyber Reason, who played a key role in making this episode happen. As always, our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts, and our Twitter is at maliciouslife, or mine at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Cyber Reason's Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Sound design by Benoha Bari. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. Music.